Welcome to the Corporate Legal Ops Consortium podcast, where we dive deep into conversations with technology and legal ops thought leaders from across the ecosystem. This is Clock Talk. I'm your host, Jen McCarran. I'm on the board of directors at Clock, and I lead the Netflix legal operations and technology team. Grace Nakuda, Nick Vandeveer, Tommy Ferreira, welcome to Clock Talk. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Let's do a quick round of intros, starting with my co-host, Tommy. I'm Tommy Ferreira, and I'm the director of legal operations at Peloton. Yes, Reese. Hey, everyone. My name is Reese Nakuda. I am a senior counsel for mergers and acquisitions at Thomson Reuters. Nick. Uh, Nick Vandeveer, formerly the CEO of ThoughtTrace, joined Thomson Reuters about six months ago via acquisition. I now run the document intelligence group within TR as part of the larger product organization. What's ThoughtTrace? So ThoughtTrace is an AI application or a machine learning application for contracts and and related documents. And you rode the acquisition wave up into TR. Indeed. And you live to tell the story. I, I love a successful acquisition integration. I'm here today. So looking good. Yeah. Tommy, we're going to get into it. Tommy, what is the topic we're getting into today? Not to put you on the spot. We are getting into AI. We're getting into machine learning. We're getting into roadmaps. We're getting into everything. Oh, all right. We're getting into everything. I just rolled off a call where I think I was mentoring someone. I never quite know what's happening on this call with a person, but it's wonderful to even be asked to be almost mentoring someone. But they mentioned the word AI to me and quote, I'm intrigued by AI in our legal ops, legal tech space. And I want to buy it basically. And I wanted to go into a full blown academic lecture about stop. Like it's not AI. No. Nick, what are we talking about? And why am I getting upset when people say AI versus machine learning? The answer you may get from like an academic AI researcher or somebody that practically uses it or consults around it, you may get very different responses. But I think generally a lot of the confusion, there's the AI that people outside the space kind of think of with the Terminator, right? I mean, or, that's AI. It's like a robot that has human intelligence. Yeah, what people would call AGI, which doesn't exist yet, artificial general intelligence. And this would be like an AI that can set its own objective, can decide to go from this thing to that, and perhaps even has some sort of sense of self-awareness. I mean, we're not talking about sentient beings or anything like that at this point, and maybe never and probably certainly not, or hopefully not in our lifetimes. But practically when we think about AI or machine learning, let's just go with machine learning. When we talk about machine learning in the commercial sense, it's the ability to use advanced statistical or machine learning techniques to really filter the signal out from the noise. So that could be pertinent to folks around clock in the legal sense. That could be in an area like life sciences in terms of looking at DNA and predicting protein structures or things like that. But it really has many different meanings. You just went deep science. You said statistical. I did. I did. You said signal. You said pertinent. You went deep science on us. Take us down from the academic 50,000 foot scientific view to on the ground. What is machine learning on the ground? On the ground. I think the important thing here is it's not a substitute for human judgment. Yeah. 
in any way, shape or form or expertise. But I think in its best applications, it's the ability to call through tremendous amounts of data and form a structured answer dramatically faster than people and people would in the past. Yeah, that's right. If the data is machine learnable. Correct. Correct. Important point. If, if and only if. Brace, you're with us on this? I am. And I think that's a dead on analysis of the benefits of machine learning, right? It's the ability to synthesize the data when you have mass amounts of it and looking at something that's going to take a human, you know, a hundred hours or 200 hours to do. And you have this machine that can do it in, you know, two minutes or five minutes or whatever it is. But using machine learning or AI, if it gets sufficiently advanced to do that is kind of the end goal and the end result that we're all hoping for, right? And you still need humans at the end of the day to sit down and look at that output and analyze it and come to conclusions based on it. But you don't want the human to do the menial task of, of having to go through all of that data and, and you know pull out information that hopefully a machine can do just as well, or if not better than the human. I think you need humans bookending it at the beginning and at the end so they can define what criteria you're looking for. They can define what it is. Then we have the machine crank it up. The human doesn't spend the time there. And then at the end, they do that quality control. They go, okay, did the machine do this right? Do I think the data that I'm seeing looks good? Yes. And I think that's an important distinction you just made, Tommy, that it's an augmentation to existing processes run by humans. Is it a replacement? Nah. And not now, maybe in dozens of sets of dozens of years. I mean, look, the switchboard operators are no longer with us. Have they been machine learned? Am I lying to legal professionals saying, I promise your job's not going anywhere? Am I lying? I don't think the jobs are going anywhere. I think you're right. I think you're telling them the truth. I think what's going to happen is people who can adapt and learn how to use the technology are going to thrive. And those that are still kind of stuck in the dark ages are going to be the ones that get replaced by other humans, not by technology per se. Everyone is so scared that technology replaces humans. But I think technology creates new opportunities for humans that didn't exist because I think humans still get to do the jobs. Maybe they're not call operators and plugging the plug into the switchboard, Mm -hmm. but maybe they're doing something different in the internet that they weren't doing before just because the technology that wasn't there before exists now. You get to do more interesting work. That's what you hope that the technology will enable you to do that you don't have to do the repetitive task over and over again and that you can do something that, like you said, Tommy, it's just, you know, you're, you're on the internet doing something else rather than putting in these switchboards and in different holes. Some people like repetitive tasks, true or false. Like people who run on a treadmill. <laughs> like, like all you people out there, all you runners on the treadmill. We don't know how you're doing it. No, I'm just kidding. I've been a runner. What I have found is, all different brain types out here in the workforce. And some want the challenge of more. Some want to automate, problem solve, fix, make something better and then go on to the next thing. Some don't. And bless their hearts if they don't. But I get it. Some people may like their cozy little spot doing the thing repetitively. How do we sell them on this? That's a problem I see that like I run into sometimes with folks. I don't think we do. 
whether it's AI or anything else, if you're talking about technology that's likely to give the people that adopt it an advantage, those that do, to raise this point, will thrive. And those that do, I think will be compelled to catch up eventually. And that's human nature. Like I completely get that people gravitate towards what they're most familiar with, which I think is the thing that you're fighting against in terms of technology adoption. It's not that they're lazy. It's not that they lack ambition or anything like that. It, it really comes down to familiarity and comfort level at some point. But to sharpen your skills and kind of stay ahead of the game, I think it's absolutely necessary and, and will be increasingly in the, in the legal profession that people look at, if not the bleeding edge, what's right behind it is part of their skill set. I think I agree. So we're separating out AI and ML a little bit here, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Nick, you taught us on ML being really a subcategory, a type of AI, but it is not AI because Terminator is a form of AI. Johnny Five from Short Circuit is AI, like the robot that can almost feel, but ML is something else. So another question I've kicked around in my mind and a little bit with you all Will AI influence legal departments? Will ML influence legal departments? Is it already happening? Or will ML, yes, AI, never? I think it's, it's happening very slowly, but I do think it's happening, especially on the ML side. Yes. I think legal departments are learning that there are cost savings that are associated with adopting new technologies that will allow you to be faster in terms of the work product and the output that you're creating. And so... From a cost savings perspective, I think legal departments are kind of glomming onto that and saying, hey, instead of spending you know, $40,000, $50,000 having external counsel look at 700 contracts, let's go put this through some kind of AI ML product software and just get the output that we need within a couple of hours. And all of a sudden, we've saved a ton of money. In addition to the cost savings, there's the aspect of new information being created and kind of back to separating the signal from the noise. If you look at ML techniques as a way to produce more signal and reduce unnecessary noise, you're going to get to better information faster. And I think necessarily more information, like the questions you never thought to ask or felt it was cost prohibitive to ask are suddenly within reach. And that really opens up the possibility for how a legal department can think about serving their customers, right? And that customer could be the folks in the business. It could be the CIO, CFO. In an increasingly ESG kind of world, it could be the CEO or the board itself. But attempting to do those things just with traditional techniques curating through data manually is a behemoth task. But applying ML in the right way, suddenly a lot of those what would otherwise seem wildly ambitious things become very much in reach. And I think that's likely to change the nature of the job in a good way for legal departments and perhaps make it, and it's already very strategic, but make it even more strategic than it is today perhaps especially legal ops. Perhaps, perhaps. Just legal ops as a part of legal, if all of us know what's in those contracts much more quickly in a datafied way, I'm air quoting, I made that word up, but you're with me, datafied? We're with you. Let's datafy this. Let's datafy it. Then we can make decisions more quickly. You know, back in the day, I was at a company that was acquired and the bigger company needed to rip and rifle through our contracts like this. That is a finger snap. They needed to know what was in there, termination clauses and terms and all of that very important business continuity detail. 
And they pulled me in to start the analysis of the contract batch and come up with the 50 fields spreadsheet, chunk it all up into 50 fields so someone can ingest that. And I said, you know, I don't have a legal background. They're like, oh, right. So they hired an attorney as well to back up what I wasn't able to pull manually. And it was, it was manual. If everyone on the podcast could just imagine my face at this job, I do not like the manual repetitive fill it in a spreadsheet field. So maybe a use case for ML. ML could have ripped through that contract batch and been like, name, contract party. Here's your term clause, termination clause terms. And I would have been happier and a superhero if I had that at my fingertips. That sounds so painful. I'm like crying on the inside. I thought of two things. One is how painful is that? And two is like, if you're like a pre-IPO startup or if you're going to do diligence in an M&A or if you have a DDoS attack or you have to figure out how fast do I have to give notices out? Like I see like a world where you call your outside counsel and it's like, get 16 associates on this now. And they're just sitting in a room and it's all they're doing the whole weekend is pouring over these. It all makes me want to cry. Tommy, you just brought back flashbacks of like my first three years of private practice because that's what you do as a junior associate. You sit there in a room and you're given hundreds of contracts and there's your entire class of like 10 people and you're told, hey, there's a thousand, two thousand contracts here. Here's the 50 fields that we need you to populate. Go ahead, get this done. We're going to produce a summary sheet for the client on Monday and we need you to do it over the weekend. So spend the next 72 hours doing this. And that's what we're trying to replace, right? You hope that you'll have the AI ML technology that you can just kind of throw everything to that instead of having the mass class of associates doing that because it is a nightmare. It is exactly as bad as you think it is. So Ray's, we're A, we're triggering you on your first job as an associate. 100%. But B, I think we're drawing out a real use case here. And I thought sometimes I forget about the junior associate. I'm always thinking about the legal professional staff that my tools in the legal ops and tech portfolio are are benefiting almost immediately. But in the law firm side, that's a big, largely impacted group. Wow. What will they do instead of this when they bring in the ML tools to do this? What will they do with that time back? What's your guess? They'll do a lot more valuable work, right? You'll actually learn how to give insights into the end product instead of just preparing that product. You don't learn anything doing that. We got articling students doing that. We got summer students doing that. Pretty much anyone can do that. You don't need a legal background to do it. So you're spending time and energy with these first, second, third year associates doing it. They can do more value add work. I use this as an analogy. Decades ago, engineers would graduate from college and they would manually draft schematics and engineering designs, that sort of thing. To my knowledge, I don't think any of them do that today. They either get an AutoCAD or SolidWorks and have for, for years. In fact, they learn that in college and they come out and they work within those programs that allows them to produce dramatically more accurate and a greater volume of work than doing these things manually. Not unlike what we're talking about with ML in this case, there is not less demand for mechanical and electrical engineers today. There's more. What exactly will the job look like? We can speculate. It'll be interesting. And I think it's fun to speculate, actually. But the idea that technology necessarily obviates the need for a part of a given profession, I I think, is clearly and consistently disproven in history. It's disproven. It's limited thinking. It's negative thinking or a fear-based response. But I love that engineering analogy with mechanical engineering. 
you have to think it's the same with software engineering, that software engineers in the 70s and 80s were coming out, cranking on everything from the ground up and writing everything raw, cold, blank terminal. And now engineers might come in and work off, what do they call it in engineering? It's uh, components that they get from code based places where you shop from a best practices library or, or you shop for starting point code and build in a modular way. That's correct. And it's interesting you bring that up. Software development, it looks like, is about to go through a substantial amount of automation with kind of AI coding buddies, the things that companies like OpenAI are working on right now are likely to substantially change software development. But, you know, I have a nine-year-old who is probably technically oriented. I would not hesitate when the time comes for him to study something like that if he wanted to. I have absolutely no doubt that like that job will change and it'll be really cool to see how it changes. But the same intellectual rigor and mindset and skill sets that have created demand for today or substantially likely to increase going into the future. I think the same is true for legal too. You guys, it's going to proliferate software engineering jobs. That's what's happened over the last 30 years. There's more need for them and there's not enough talent. There's always a talent war for that great skill set in mind. Whoa. I mean, we just went from robots taking my jobs to a place of abundance. And then what does that mean? There's more engineers because more people are solving problems that are in the negative space, problems people can't see. People are looking up and daydreaming and going, I'm going to software solve for that. And here comes the startup that does that small thing. And then it blows up to bigger things. That's kind of inspiring. Every legal department, Tommy, should go ML everything right now. We have just decided that technologies does not replace humans. Okay. In fact, it enhances humans' opportunities. Okay. And we have nothing to worry about. Embrace the AI, the ML, although we should come back to AGI. That sounds like a whole other podcast I want us to do. (laughs) AGI. That's where the robots are thinking for themselves, Jen. So that we come back to. I think that just should stay in Hollywood right now. It makes It's a good ScarJo movie. I'll take it. She was an awesome AGI voice in her. Okay, well, I'm feeling very positive. And that was such an interesting analogy for my brain. Let's turn the tables here. Let's sharp contrast. Is ML failing in certain places? Why does it fail? When does it fail? When we go to implement this in our business environments? I think it goes back to Tommy's point about having humans bookend the process. So at the start, I guess, compiling the data and then inputting the data and making sure that you have sufficient data to get the outputs that you need. It's not really an ML failure, but it is a process, not failure, but a process complication where it's like, okay, we know what we want to get, but we need to just spend time and energy making sure we collect all the data to start and that we upload it onto the right systems and processes so that the actual machine can do the analysis and provide the output. So Reese, the lack of prep work, if you don't prepare for this kind of solution, then you bring it in and it's not ready. It has no inputs, basically. A hundred percent. Like if you don't do the legwork up front, you're not going to be able to take advantage of the automation. Nick, yes. You have a thought. So I'm going to zoom away from ML real quick. And I think the number one thing that causes in a machine learning project to go sideways is the same thing that causes any software implementation to go sideways or probably as the main culprit 
that is often people attempting to too, do too much too fast. Yes. Rather than taking a small to medium small step, they have a grand ambition for completely overhauling a department and they've got a simple 23 step waterfall plan that's going to be implemented over 18 months. And guess what? The assumptions you made about a year and a half from now today turn out to be maybe not so accurate six months in. And that's just human nature. It sure is. Or they change or they change because the business is changing. 100% priorities change. So if somebody's looking at scoping a million dollar AI project, and this is an odd thing for me to say, given my job, my advice would be to maybe scale back the ambition on that. Find the quick win, get the quick win that you can do at lower company and personal risk, if you will, and then figure out where you want to grow from there. I mean, the beauty in doing smaller projects to start with is you learn an immense amount to then take that next larger bite, whether we're talking about machine learning or anything else. Anything. I think that's generally true. If you're implementing a huge ERP system, you probably don't have that option. But for most or many things you do, and when you do, I would encourage folks to go that route where possible. Oh, boy. What did you say? Scale back your ambition. Break your ambition. Break it into pieces. Break your ambition into smaller bites. Yeah, smaller pieces. If I could only tell you the call I was on earlier, one day I will step out in the industry and talk about it. I am having a fail buffet right now on one particular project that does not involve ML. But to your point, in any project, I came out the gate hot and went ambitious and then was like, okay, first things first, let's do a really small experiment inside the big million dollar gate or some, you know, high price, high cost item. I was just signing away. And we did a small experiment with a limited user group. And guess what? They rejected. They don't want it. They don't want the thing. I'm not talking about ML, but they don't want the thing that I've uh, ambitiously signed for. And it's a really good advice. Tommy, you're feeling this. I'm feeling it because, Jen, we've talked about it a lot. You do want to do proof of concept. Like you do want to figure out if the, we've talked about hypothesis. We talked about going out and proving it. It's not unique to ML. It's not unique to technology. It very much shows up in our space, but really like proving out your hypothesis on the scale that feels comfortable in failing. Play in the sandbox that feels good where you can still iterate and where you can still pivot and then you go and prove something different. And that I think is really good for ML, especially because I mean this, the humans are essential, especially at the beginning to really refine and define what is it that you're looking for later? Because otherwise, garbage in, garbage out. So I think it's really essential in this space to figure out what it is that you're looking for. I think the robots do the work really well. I think the humans really have to define what it is they're trying to get out of it. That's a bit of the theme that I heard from all three of you is ML's fine, but the humans really can mess things up. That, that is it. That is it. How do we help the humans? How do we help the humans not fail with ML? You are all saying, go small, experiment, prove the concept in a proof of concept. Proof of concept or start with an appropriately sized implementation of whatever you're doing, like whether it's ML or not. Spend the first six months learning as much as you can. I don't think any vendor is going to do a six-month proof of concept, at least not that I'm aware of. But I think even after you buy software, buy an appropriate size byte, learn from that. Actually, though, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they do six months? You're saying that's too long to POC? I could just speak from my perspective. There's opportunity cost on the vendor side as well. So having six months of attention on something where there's 
no economic benefit. I think it's a perilous journey for any software provider. I wouldn't recommend doing that. So there's got to be skin in the game, certainly for both parties. I've had this conversation with many of our customers where they want to start off with something unbelievably ambitious. Dial that back a little bit, which is an odd thing to hear. Spend less money at the outset. But if your base assumption is that you should recommend that the customer does what you would do, like look at it, advocate for them in the same way you would for yourself, then yeah, I think taking those smaller bites is the way to go. You're going to have a better long-term success and long-term relationship that way. Maybe it's because I'm in deep fail mode right now and lessons learned on this proof of concept and was in a deep discussion just before this podcast. Nick's words are hitting me very hard. I'm like, oh, where were you? I ran a POC for almost a year. And I'm also thinking like maybe that was too long. And I did a pre-POC. It was time bound super short and I wouldn't let it go for six months. But then we did a a next phase one that went for a long time. And here we are in the perilous other side. Reis, getting your house in order, getting your data house in order. Talk to us how you did that in your real life example of bringing in ML and getting your data house in order. I think you have the ultimate M&A example. So I wouldn't say all of your data was in order right off the bat going to Tommy's point and going to your earlier discussion, we had all of our outputs that we needed. We had our, here's the 12, 15 items that we need to pull from our data analysis. The issue we had was, you know, we need to find the actual data. Where's all the data? When you're working in a big organization like TR, it's not always readily available or as readily available as you would want it. So it took us a while to compile and collect the data. But once we had it, putting it into the system and then getting the outputs we needed for the various M&A transactions that we were involved in. It was incredible, right? It was just snap of a finger. Here's all the data that you need to now analyze. And instead of spending countless hours and thousands and thousands of dollars, we were able to do it immediately and at no cost to us because we obviously own the product, but uh, great experience. What'd you have to do to get that data? Was there some APIing, script writing, pull, big batches of files from one place into another, into another. All of that, right? Hard. I don't know how to write any script. That's not me, but we had to get people to sit there and write scripts that would then go and automatically pull data over like a weekend. And it would be like, oh, here's 700 more documents. And now I'm going to kind of adapt this script and see if I can get a bigger set. Script writing and script adapting. That is an engineer, my friends. That is an at least an enterprise IT level eng mind and person. And you have to have those in your org, which Thomson Reuters does. You're quite technical, but I could see someone seeing ML on a demo and being so excited. There's just the lonely legal ops person with very little to know IT, maybe it's a startup-y kind of place. And then they get it. They sign and they get it. And they're like, oh my goodness, I don't have a technical resource. Now what? Know your technical resource needs before you ink things, everyone. That's my only advice there. And that is where I I have not failed this week. Thanks. Thanks. I'll let myself out. I have not failed (laughs) at knowing my technical resource needs. I heard a story from one of our peers, they will remain nameless, who said they bought an ML platform because the demos were amazing. And then they got the thing inside and it was machine learning for contract analysis, analytics, metadata tagging, and so on. And they got the thing inside 
and it just wasn't as promised once it was inside and they couldn't make it work and they they backed out they terminated in a few months can you imagine this is a nightmare for all i think for all involved it's a nightmare I would say on the software, again, ML or not, there are two things. If I were buying software that I'd want to validate, number one, of course, is the product. And I think POCs are a wonderful way to do that. Part two would be the customer success or professional services component of who I was going to be working with, really understanding what that's going to look like. What is the level of commitment there? What is the technical depth and breadth? Because you really don't want to buy something and be left on an island immediately thereafter. I, the best way I've heard this phrase is, so I buy your product. What does my life look like the day after? That is a critical question. That is not just a product question at the end of the day. It is as much a people question in terms of the organization you're working with as anything else. Because to your point, not everybody has extraordinarily deep technical resources. A lot of companies do, a lot don't. But you know, as a service provider, I think service being the key word, you need to be able to cater to really both those audiences. Especially if you're an individual contributor. Yeah. I love this, Nick, because you should ask like, hey, about how many hours of my week do I have to do the work here once I am implemented? Because if you now find your full-time job is churning in contracts or defining what it is that you want out of them, you may not realize like, oh, I didn't have the bandwidth to run this thing after I implemented it. So really figuring out what are my actual resources that I need to run this into the ground and get everything out of it is essential. It's like maintenance on a car. The test drive may be great, but if it's leaking oil and there's no maintenance department, like you're in trouble. Thank God cars tend to be very reliable these days, but this used to be a real thing back in the 80s. Back in the 80s, back in the 70s. Well, to play on the car analogy, it's actually like you buy a car with the expectation you're getting it full and you're coming out of the parking lot, the showroom with that car and you can rev that engine all the way to its top performance on the freeway home. But instead you get in the car and they're like, well, that part of the engine isn't fully here. So if you spend another 10K, we can add that on. And I think that's what's happened sometimes for people with software purchases, period, let alone ML in the early days. There was, you buy it and then day one to your amazing advice and question, Nick, is Day one, well, now you have to train your models. Surprise, you need people, the humans to train it. And I could see how someone could feel duped and want to end that contract. Without going into our viewpoint on products too much or focusing on too much on TR products or anything like that, I think in the big picture, very much what you'll see is that B2B AI products start to look like B2C a lot more and that model training becomes less of a requirement as adoption goes up. You know, I've got an iPhone, but you have a Pixel or a Samsung Galaxy, whatever it may be, and it takes amazing pictures so much so that you don't need to take a Nikon D40 on vacation. It's doing amazing things with computer vision algorithms, any one of those cameras. If I had to train my own computer vision algorithm to use night sight on my iPhone or whatever it's called, I probably wouldn't use that feature at the end of the day. It's got to be accessible for me on my terms. And B2B ML, whether it's in the legal space or elsewhere, I, I think that same thing will become increasingly true. Just to add to that, you definitely don't want to be in a situation where you get ML AI and then you have to sit there and spend hours and hours training a model. Like that is the nightmare scenario for any client. That is a nightmare scenario for any lawyer, right? Like 
we want the product and I want to be able to run with it the next day. Now, do I have the inputs? That's another question, but I don't want to sit there and spend another 25, 30 days training models so that I can then use the product. Yeah. The models should be built. There should be enough out of the box so that you can be a happy consumer. And I think these are great points, Nick. I think we're on the road to B2C, business to consumer style UIs and surfacing the info back to people in an easy, digestible way. But I don't know that we're there at some of the products. Well, or tell me, I haven't seen TR's products. And Tommy, I don't know what products you've been in. I still get a little nervous putting the UI of an ML product. We're speaking in so many letters here, but go with me. UI, the user interface, front end of a software solution that does ML in front of lawyers. I don't know. I don't know if it's for them yet. Prove me wrong. Can you? Is it B2C? It has to be. I am a lawyer and I had the same concerns. I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't want to get into this technology. You know, I hate new technology. I can manually do this. And at least for TR products, and again, I don't want to sell anything, but the TR product was just so easy to use. It was just so user-friendly. It was immediately, I was like, oh, I don't know why I was scared of this. I don't know why I was worried about using this. It's just very intuitive. It was kind of like picking up an iPhone and using that. Yeah, that's the analogy I would use. And I think, again, getting lawyers, you know, if you give them something and they look at it and they get scared with it, no lawyer is ever going to use it. It has to be right off the bat, they look at it and it's very clear and obvious to them how that product is supposed to work. And it's exactly as how they would kind of envision it in their head or would hope for it to work. And I think that's what we have. That is exciting. We have to leave the people here, the listenership, with pictures of what success looks like with ML because it's broad, it's big. It's, it could be a big solution. It could be a big price tag, large data sets. Tommy, I'm going to start with you. The legal ops manager wants to go in this direction. What does success look like? What's your advice? I think success depends on what you're trying to achieve. And I think as we've said, like clearly define what that looks like, tease it out and try to do some proofs of concept so that you can figure out if I'm going into an M&A, does it look like I don't have that room full of associates working on something? And did I just churn out some data in a day or two and I can get closer to diligence? If it's that we have to terminate all of our contracts with this type of vendor because of a new vendors coming on board, what does that look like? So I think one example of success is knowing what you want on the other side of it. Know where you're going. Don't just shop for ML because it's a hot term and you want to be flashy. Like actually connect problems, real problems and use cases to this and do your proofs of concept is what I heard. Yep. Agreed. More tips and tricks to leave the people with. What does success look like with ML? For me, it looks like every contract, this is me getting into like my vision voice. Every contract at this company enters into the contract solution and it goes through an ML process. And the ML pulls out those, you know, first five to 60 data points, but especially those first five and relieves our human service function from doing that and lets them do more. That's success to me. That's what I'm driving towards. I want that very important, but repetitive, routinizable, low value task, lower value task. I want the machine to do that. Give the humans something to look up and daydream about doing better. 
That's success for me. Is that too big? Did I go too visionary? No. 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 That sounds very attainable. Thank you. That's exactly what success would look like. You don't want to be doing that work. You want the machine to do it. You want to free up your time. And I think that's success when you can say, I don't need to spend 25 hours looking through these contracts. This machine's going to do it for me in the next five minutes. And now you just opened up a contract manager's day. They can go like learn how to negotiate contracts and they can like up level and upskill. And you just gave them back a few hours of their day. They could learn how to build a data visualization over some clause, the outcome of some count of some clause that is going a certain way or the other. Look at this beautiful heat map that I've given to you. Ah. Look at this heat map and risk assessment of all of our contracts. Nick, what do you got for what's a successful picture of machine learning, drawing on everything and all your wisdom from today? The thing I would love to see broadly in the coming months and years is that, as I understand it, the line between the business owning contract obligations and legal owning contract risk, as well as some other things, goes away. That the contracts are the contracts along with the related documents And that regardless of function, whether it's within legal or somebody in the business or procurement or a question the controller, the CFO has, that there truly is a common source of truth as to what the contract or contracts say over time. And that, and I take it a step further, and that is informed by how regulation changes, how case law changes, things like ESG, that is the business environment changes over time, the appropriate folks within the company have a clear understanding of what the implications are for them, regardless of function, as it pertains to the agreements that that company has entered into. Deep. So shifting successful ML opens up ownership of the contract to the company more broadly. It doesn't become some legal only thing or it makes them more accessible. Is that what you're saying? People can get their clause, understand how it impacts their role as CFO, their work stream, their parallel process and be a little more or a little less reliant on legal or searching or pinging contract analysts to find it for them. I'll give you a data point on this. A non-trivial percentage, certainly not a majority, but a non-trivial percentage of the users of our software are in accounting, like literally in accounting. They're not the admins, but they interact with it to answer questions more quickly around settlements and payments than they can in their ERP system. And they go directly to the source of truth. So Think of a contract and where all the data elements go into other systems and how many very linear, step-by-step, rigid processes are created across different organizations. And then reimagine a world where the contract essentially becomes the system of record and how disparate groups within a company may interact with that contract as a system of record. I think that's ultimately where the whole thing's going. Because We, and by we, I mean generally the world of software has built so many different systems around what people think contracts say, not just CLM systems, but all kinds of different stuff. And it is certainly not always right and certainly not always current. In fact, it would be the exception that it is. But ultimately, that's the thing that can and should change here in the near future. I think the implications of that start with like a much better spreadsheet that tracks the 10 to 60 items, but the implications are profound. Profound. And we're just cracking into that now. One small use case and POC at a time because it's newer technology, newer to all of us. And we're not perfect. We're humans. And we don't always know how to do this stuff flawlessly. 
I love where you brought us to, Nick. I think that's it. It opens up this mystery document that this super high skilled lawyer creates and turns it into a data field. And anyone can grab, once it's metadata by the machine, anyone can grab that and pull it via system, via API or script into other places and have it more quickly to run their part of the business on. We're not saying it's not a panacea. And sometimes a clause is not enough on its own. You need to know how it interrelates to 25 other clauses. I mean, enter the rights tree of Hollywood. Uh, You need an advanced degree to figure out the rights tree. But could we get the rights team, those clauses in the machine read and sped way so that they can get their puzzle built more quickly? Well, that is cool. And then they own that. It's demystifying. Wow, you three, I got somewhere new. And it's not just because I'm suffering in my fail pool. And you said things that didn't go down on the prep call. Some new insights here. I like how we push this along. It has such a positive outlook for me. And it's something I think we can put in our listeners' minds as, think about this, explore, but experiment and do your homework before. And if you fail, just come talk to me on the podcast on a fail episode. And we can commiserate on that too later, but not now. Right now we're all winning. Thank all three of you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jen. That about wraps up this episode of Clock Talk. Thank you to Thought Trace for their sponsorship and to Nick and Reyes for debunking some misconceptions about artificial intelligence and sharing some real world opportunities for using machine learning in a legal environment. You can catch this and other episodes of Clock Talk wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. Until next time.